Chapter Twenty Nine of Opening a Chestnut Burr by Edward P. Rowe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Like Many Waters. Chapter Twenty Nine, Deepening Shadows. Mister Walton received Hunting in a fatherly way. Indeed, he looked upon the man as a son, and the thought of leaving Annie to his protection was an unspeakable comfort. Altogether, Hunting was reassured by his reception, which proved that his relations were as yet undisturbed. But in the depths of his soul he trembled at the presence of Gregory in the house, and when Miss Eulie came down and said, after an affectionate greeting, that Gregory was in something like a stupper, he was even base enough to wish that he might never come out of it. At the word stupper, Annie's face grew pale. She had a growing dissatisfaction with Hunting's manner in regard to Gregory, and felt that he did not feel or show the interest or gratitude that he ought, but there was nothing tangible with which she could tax him. The doctor, who came early in the evening, reassured her and said that the state of partial consciousness was not necessarily a dangerous symptom, as it might be the result of a severe shock. The young man he brought was installed as nurse under Miss Eulie's charge, and Annie said that Mr. Hunting would also take his turn as watcher. Then she, Mr. Hunting, and her father had a long talk over what had happened in his absence, Mr. Walton dwelling most feelingly on what he regarded as the providential character of the visit from the son of his old friend. If he ever leaves our house alive, I have a strong assurance that he will join his father in the better home. Please don't talk so, father, pleaded Annie. Well, my child, perhaps it's best I should, and prepare your minds for what may be near. It's a great consolation to see Charles again, and he will help you bear whatever is God's will. You can trust her to me, said Hunting fervently. I have ample means to gratify her most extravagant wish, and my love will shelter her and think for her even as yours would. But I trust you will soon share our home with us. I expect to, my children, but it will be our eternal home. Annie strove bravely to keep her tears back, for her father's sake, but they would come. Annie, said Hunting, won't you please let your father put this ring on your engagement finger? And he gave Mr. Walton a magnificent solitaire diamond. Mr. Walton took his daughter's hand and looked earnestly into her tearful, blushing face. Annie, he said, in a grave, sweet tone, I hope for your sake that I may be wrong, but I have a presentiment that my pilgrimage is nearly ended. You have made its last stage very happy. A good daughter makes a good wife, Mr. Hunting. And Annie, dear, I shall tell your mother that you supplied her place as far as a daughter could. It will add greatly to my peace if I can leave you and my sister and the dear little ones under the care of one so competent to protect and provide for you all. Mr. Hunting, do you feel that you can take them to your home and heart with my daughter? Certainly, said Hunting. I had no other thought, and Annie's will shall be supreme in her future home. But after all, the chief question is, does this ring join your hearts? I'm sure I'm right in thinking so, Annie. Yes, she said in a low tone. Slowly, with his feeble, trembling hands, he put the flashing gem on Annie's finger, and then placed her hand in Hunting's, and, looking solemnly to heaven, said, May God bless this betrothal as your father blesses it. Hunting stooped, and kissed her hand, and then her lips. 
with mingled truth and policy he said this ceremony is more solemn and binding to me than the one yet to come at the altar annie was happy in her engagement it was what she expected and had been consummated in a way that seemed peculiarly sweet and sacred and yet her thoughts with a remorseful tinge would keep recurring to the man who even then might be dying for her sake after they had sat a little while in silence which is often the best expression of deep feeling she suddenly said with an involuntary sigh poor mr gregory i'm so sorry for him thus hunting knew where her thoughts were and instantly the purpose formed itself in his mind to induce her through her father's consent to an immediate marriage he saw more plainly than annie the great change in her father and based his hope on the fact that the parent might naturally wish to give his child a legal protector before he passed away mr walton now showed such signs of weariness that they left him in miss eulie's care who seemed to flit like a ministering spirit between the two patients after the great excitement of the day annie too was very weary and soon the household sought such rest as was possible with two of its inmates apparently very near the boundaries that separate the known world from the unknown glimmering all night long like signals of distress at sea the faint lights of the watchers reminded late passers-by of the perilous nature of earthly voyaging annie had gone with miss eulie to take a parting look at gregory she bent over him and said mr gregory but his spirit seemed to have sunk into such far depths that even her voice could not summon him. Oh, if he should die now, she moaned shudderingly, and on the night of her engagement sobbed herself to sleep. The next morning saw little change in the patients, save that Mr. Walton was evidently weaker. Miss Eulie said that Gregory had roused up during the night and seemed perfectly conscious. He had inquired after Mr. Walton and Annie, but toward morning had fallen into his old lethargy after breakfast annie took hunting up to see him but was pained at the darkening of her lover's face as he looked at the prostrate and unconscious man she could not understand it he seemed to have no wish to remain she felt almost indignant and yet what could she say more than she had said gregory's condition and the cause should naturally plead for him beyond all words Annie spent most of the day with her father, and purposed watching with him that night. The doctor came and reported more favorably of Gregory, but said that everything depended upon his being quiet. Annie purposed that hunting should commence the duties of watcher as soon as possible. Therefore she told her aunt to tell Gregory, as soon as she thought it would answer, that hunting had arrived. In the afternoon Gregory seemed to come out of his lethargy more decidedly than he had before and took some nourishment with marked relish then he lay quietly looking at the fire do you feel better now miss eulie asked gently i'm sure i don't know he answered wearily i have a numb strange feeling would you like to see miss walton no not now i am satisfied to know she is well she wished me to tell you that mr hunting had arrived he turned away his face with a deep scowl but said nothing after some time she came to his side and said is there anything you would like nothing he replied gently i appreciate your great kindness miss eulie sighed and left the room feeling dimly that there were internal injuries after all but such as were beyond the doctor's skill annie echoed her sigh when she heard how he received miss eulie's information 
she determined to prepare and take him his supper. When she noiselessly entered, he was again looking fixedly at the fire, but she had not advanced far into the room before he recognized her step and looked up quickly. "'See,' she said, cheerily coming to his side, "'I've prepared and brought you this supper with my own hands, and shall expect in return that you compliment it highly.' now isn't it a good supper she asked holding it before him but his eyes fastened on the glittering and significant ring whose meaning he too well understood with an expression of intense pain he turned his face to the wall without a word mr gregory pleaded annie i never thought you would turn away from me not from you not from you he said in a low tone but i'm very weak and the light of that diamond is too strong for me yet forgive me she said in a tone of deep reproach i did not think no forgive me please leave me now and remember in charity how weak i am she put the tray down and hastened from the room he ate no supper that night neither did she hunting watched her gloomily with both fear and jealousy at heart the latter however was groundless for annie's feeling was only that of profound sorrow for something she could not help but lack of strongly manifested interest and sympathy for gregory injured him in her estimation for womanlike she unconsciously took the side of the one he wronged she could understand gregory's enmity but it seemed to her that hunting should be full of generous enthusiasm for one who was suffering so much in her behalf men are so strange she said half vexedly they fall in love without the slightest provocation and hate each other forever when a woman would have sharp words and be over with it they never do what you would naturally expect during the day hunting had found time to see jeff alone but had found him inclined to be sullen and uncommunicative jeff had changed sides and was now an ardent adherent of gregory's who had given him five dollars without imposing any conditions and then what was of far greater import had saved the house and annie's life and according to jeff's simple view of equity he ought to have both and yet a certain rude element of honesty made him feel that he had made a bargain with hunting and that he must fulfill his part and then they would be quits but he was not disposed to do it with a very good grace so when hunting said well jeff i suppose you've seen a good deal since i was last here yes i've seen a mighty lot said jeff sententiously well jeff you remember our agreement what did you see only the truth now sartin sa only de truth i's belong to the walton family and yous don't get nothing but de truth from dem all right jeff i'm glad your employers have so good an influence on you well i seen mr gregory on de roof said jeff drawing on his imagination as he had only heard about that event through zibby's highly colored story where some other folks wouldn't dar go and now i see dat house dar which i wouldn't see dar wasn't it for mr gregory well well said hunting impatiently i've heard all about that what else i seen miss annie round all day bloomin and sweet as a rose and i seen how she might have been a crushed white lily jeff continued solemnly with a rhetorical wave of the hand there existed in jeff the raw material of a colored preacher only it was very crude and undeveloped but upon any important occasion he always grew rhetorical and figurative in his language come come jeff tell me something new well said jeff since i's promised to tell you and since i's spent the ten dollars and hasn't got it to give you back again i seen missa gregory last sunday evenin a kneelin afore miss annie as if he was a sayin his prayers to her 
and I shouldn't wonder if she heard him, with a chuckle. Anyhow, she wasn't lofty or scornful, and Miss O'Gregory he looked kind of glorified ever since. Afore that he looked glum, and Miss Annie, she's been kinder bending toward him since that evening, like a rosebud with the dew on it. Hunting's face darkened with suppressed anger and jealousy. After a moment he said, Is that all? That's all. Well, Jeff, here's ten more dollars, and look sharper than ever now. Excuse me, Miss Hunting, we're square now. I's done what I agreed, and now I's going out of the business. Has Gregory engaged your services? asked Hunting quickly. No, sir, he have not. I reckon Miss Gregory Tinky doesn't need any help. Why won't you do as I wish, then? Well, Mr. Hunting, it kind of makes me feel bad here. And Jeff, rubbing his hands indefinitely over several physical organs. I's don't just believe Miss Annie would like it, and after seeing Mr. Gregory under dat pesky ladder, I couldn't do nothing that he wouldn't like. If it hadn't been for him, I'd sort of felt as if I'd killed Miss Annie by leaving dat doggone ladder so straight up, and I never could have gone out in the dark again all my life. "'Why, you old black fool,' said Hunting irritably, "'don't you know I'm going to marry Miss Annie? "'You'd better keep on the right side of me.' "'Which is the right side?' Jeff could not forbear saying, with a suppressed chuckle. "'Come, sir, no impudence. "'You won't serve me any more, then?' "'Oh, yes, Miss Hunting. "'As black your boots, make the fire, harness the hoss, "'do anything that won't hurt in here,' "'with a gesture that seemed to indicate the pit of his stomach. "'Anything more? "'Please excuse me.' "'You will not speak of what has passed between us?' "'As given my word,' said Jeff, drawing himself up. "'The word of one that belongs to the Waltons.' Hunting turned on his heel and strode away. Annie had given one aspect to the scene on that Sabbath evening, and Jeff had innocently given another. Hunting was not loyal enough, even to such a woman as Annie, to believe her implicitly. But it is the curse of conscious deceit to breed suspicion.' Only the true can have absolute faith in the truth of others. Moreover, Hunting, in his hidden selfishness and worldliness, could not understand Annie's ardent effort to save a fellow creature from sin. Skilled in the subtle impulses of the heart, he believed that Annie, unconsciously even to herself, was drifting toward the man he hated all the more because he had wronged him, while the danger of his presence made him almost vindictive yet he realized the necessity of disguising his feelings, for if Annie discovered them he might well dread the consequence. But the idea of watching alone with Gregory was revolting. It suggested dark thoughts, which he tried to put from him in horror, for he was far from being a hardened villain. He was only a man who had gradually formed the habit of acting from expedience and self-interest instead of principle. Such a rule of life often places us where expedience and self-interest require deeds that are black indeed. But he was saved from the ordeal of spending hours alone with a man, who even in his helplessness might injure him beyond remedy. For on the following morning Annie again sought Gregory's room, bent on securing reconciliation at once. She felt that she could endure this estrangement no longer. The young man employed as a watcher was out at the time, Gregory was gazing at the fire, with the same look of listless apathy. A deep flush overspread his deathly pale face as she came and sat down beside him, but he did not turn from her. "'Mr. Gregory,' she said, very gently, 
it seems that i can do nothing but receive favors from you and i've come now to ask a great one he suspected something concerning hunting and his face darkened forbiddingly though annie noted this she would not be denied do you think she said earnestly that after your sacrifice for me i can ever cease to be your friend in the truest and strongest sense miss walton he said calmly i've made no sacrifice for you the thought of that episode in the orchard is my one comfort while lying here and will be through what is left of life but please do not speak of it for it will become a pain to me if i see the obligation is a burden to you it is not she said eagerly i'm glad i owe my life to you but do you think i can go on my way and forget you it's the very best you can do miss walton but i tell you it's impossible thank god it's not my nature to do it he turned toward her with a wistful searching look we must carry out our old agreement continued annie we must be close and lasting friends you should not blame me for an attachment formed years ago i do not blame you then you should not punish me so severely you first make your friendship needful to me and then you deny it i am your friend and more how can we enjoy a frank and happy friendship through coming years after after you feel differently from what you do now when you will not even hear the name of him who will one day be my second self again his face darkened but she continued rapidly mr hunting is deeply grateful to you and would like to express his feelings in person he wishes to bury the past he will with me soon interrupted gregory gloomily no please do not speak in that way she pleaded he wishes to make what little return he can and offers to watch with you night and day he turned upon her almost fiercely and said are you too in league with my evil destiny in that you continually persecute me with that man miss walton i half doubt whether you know what love means or you would not make such a proposition let me at least die quietly with the memory of the past and the knowledge of the present his presence in my room would be death by torture pardon me but let us end this matter once for all we have both been unfortunate you in inspiring a love that you cannot return i in permitting my heart to go from me beyond recall before learning that my passion would be hopeless i do not see that either of us has been to blame you certainly not in the slightest degree but however vain my love is an actual fact and i cannot act as if it were not as well might a man with a mortal wound smile and say it's but a scratch i cannot change my mind merely in view of expedience and invest such feelings in another way the fact of my love is now a past disaster and i must bear the consequences with such fortitude as i can but what you ask would drive me mad if i should live possibly in the future i might meet you often without the torturing regret i now feel but to make a smiling member of charles hunting's friendly circle would require on my part the baldest hypocrisy and i can't do it and won't try if that man comes into my room i will crawl out if i can he was trembling with excitement his face flushed and feverish and his eyes unnaturally bright and you banish me too said annie hurt and alarmed at the same time yes yes forgive me for saying so yes till i'm stronger see how i've spoken to you i've no self-control she was most reluctant to go and stood a moment hesitating 
Timidly she ventured to quote the line, Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot cure. That's a comforting fact for those who are going there, he said coldly. With a sudden burst of passionate grief, she stooped and kissed his hand, then fled to her own room and cried as if her heart would break. It seemed as if he were lost to her and heaven, and yet he was capable of being so noble and good. Miss Eulie entered Gregory's room soon after, and was alarmed at his feverish and excited appearance. She decided that Annie's visits must cease for the present. However, she took no apparent notice of his disturbed condition, but immediately gave a remedy to ward off fever, and a strong opiate which, with the reaction and his weakness, caused him to sink back into something like his old lethargy. Hunting had spent the morning with Mr. Walton, preparing his mind for the plan of immediate marriage. He found the failing man not averse to the project, as his love ought to secure to Annie every help and solace possible. After Annie had removed from her face to the best of her ability every trace of her emotion, she came down and took her place at her father's side, intending to leave it only when compelled to. Hunting knew of her mission to Gregory and looked at her inquiringly, but she sadly shook her head. He tried to look hurt, but only succeeded in looking angry. He soon controlled himself, however, though he noted with deep uneasiness Annie's sad face and red eyes. Mr. Walton, fortunately, was dozing and needed no explanation. That night he was much worse and had some very serious symptoms. Annie did not leave his side, but toward morning he rallied and fell into a quiet sleep. Then she took a little rest. The next day she was told that there was a gentleman in the parlor who wished to see her. The stranger proved to be one of Gregory's partners, Mr. Seymour, who courteously said, I should have been here before, but the senior partner, Mr. Burnett, is unable to attend to business at present, and I came away the first moment I could leave. I felt sure also that everything would be done that could be. I hope the injury is not so serious as was first supposed. You may rest assured that we have tried to do everything, said Annie gravely, but Mr. Gregory is in a very precarious condition. You would like to see him, I suppose. If I can, with safety to him. I think a brief interview may do him good. He needs rallying. At that moment, Hunting, not knowing who was present, entered. Both gentlemen started, but Mr. Seymour gave no sign of recognition, nor did Hunting, though he could not at first hide a certain degree of nervous agitation. Annie presented him. Mr. Seymour bowed stiffly and said rather curtly, We have met before and then gave him no further attention, but continuing to address Annie, said, I well understand that Mr. Gregory needs rallying. That has been just his need for the last few months, during which time his health has been steadily failing. I was in hopes he would come back. And then he stopped, quite puzzled for a moment by the sudden change in Annie's manner, which had become freezingly cold toward him, while there was a look of honest indignation upon her face. "'Excuse me, sir,' she said briefly. "'I will send you my aunt, who will attend to your wishes.' And she left Mr. Seymour standing in the middle of the room, both confused and annoyed. But he at once surmised that it was on account of his manner toward Hunting, who sat down with a paper at the further side of the room, as if he were alone. But when, a moment later, Miss Eulie entered with her placid, unruffled face, Mr. Seymour could not be otherwise than perfectly polite and after a few words followed her to Gregory's room. 
Annie at once came to Hunting and asked, Why did that man act so? Why, don't you see? answered he hastily. Mr. Seymour is Mr. Gregory's partner. They all have the same reason for feeling hostile toward me, though perhaps Gregory has special reasons, he added with a searching look. Annie blushed deeply at this allusion, but said with emphasis, No man shall treat you in that way in my presence and still receive courtesy from me. But his jealous spirit had noticed her quick blush more than her generous resentment of the insult she supposed offered him. Therefore he said, Mr. Gregory would treat me worse if he got a chance. But his case is different from anyone else's, she said, with another quick flush. Evidently so, in your estimation. Then for the first time she noticed his jealousy, and it hurt her sorely. She took a step nearer and looked very gravely into his face for a moment without speaking, and then said, with that calmness which is more effective than passion, Charles, take care, I'm one that will be trusted, though it seems a light matter to you that he has saved my life, at perhaps the cost of his own, it does not to me. The cool and usually cautious man had for once lost his poise, and he said with sudden irritation, I hear that and nothing else. What else could he have done? If you had stayed at your father's side, you would have been safe. He took you out to walk, and any man would have risked his life to bring you back safely. He now saw in Annie a spirit he could never control, as he managed people in Wall Street. For, with a sudden flash in her eyes, she said hotly, I do not reason thus coldly about those to whom I owe so much. In bitterness of fear and self-reproach, he at once realized his blunder. He followed her, but she was with her father, and he could not speak there. He looked imploringly at her, but could not catch her eye, for she was deeply incensed. Had she not heard him, she would not have believed that he could be so ungenerous. He wrote on a scrap of paper, Annie, forgive me, I humbly ask your pardon. I'm not myself to-day, and that man's conduct, which you so nobly resented in my behalf, vexed me to that degree that I acted like a fool. I am not worthy of you, but you will perceive that my folly arises from my excess of love for you. I'm going for a walk. Please greet me with pardon in your face on my return. Impulsive, loving, warm-hearted Annie could not resist such an appeal. She at once relented and began to make a thousand better excuses for her lover than he could for himself. But she had taught him a lesson and proved that she was not a weak, willowy creature that would cling to him no matter what he was or did. He saw that he must seem to be worthy of her. Gregory greeted his partner with a momentary glow of gratitude that he had come so far to see him, and began talking about his business. "'Not a word of that, old fellow,' said Mr. Seymour. Your business is to get well. It seems to me that you have everything here for comfort. Good medical attendance, eh? Yes, if anything, too much is done for me. I don't understand just how it happened. Gregory told him briefly. By Jove, this Miss Walton ought to be very grateful to you. She is too grateful. I don't know about that. I met that infernal hunting downstairs. Of course, I couldn't treat him with politeness, and do you know the little lady spunked up about it to that degree that she almost turned her back on me and left the room? Of course, said Gregory coolly, shielding his secret by a desperate effort. They are engaged. Oh, I understand now. Well, I rather like her spirit. Does she know how accomplished her lover is in Wall Street? No, hunting is a distant relative of the family. 
They believe him to be a gentleman, and would not listen to a word against him. But they ought to know. He lied like a scoundrel to us, and in your trying all summer to make up the losses, he has nearly been the death of you. I wouldn't let my daughter marry him, though he had enough money to break the street, and it is a pity that a fine girl, as this Miss Walton seems, should throw herself away on him. "'Well, Seymour, that's not our affair,' said Gregory, pale and faint from his effort at self-control. They would listen to nothing. "'Well, good-bye, old fellow. I see it won't do to talk to you any more. Get well as soon as you can, for we want you woefully in town. Get well, and carry off this Miss Walton yourself. It would be a neat way of turning the tables on hunting.' "'Don't set your heart on seeing me at the office again,' said Gregory feelingly. I have a presentiment that I shan't pull through this, and I don't much care. Give my kindest regards to Mr. Burnett, and tell him I shall think of him to the last as among my best friends. Seymour made a few hearty remonstrances against such a state of mind, and took his departure with many misgivings. Gregory relapsed into his old dreary apathy. Life had so many certain ills that upon the whole he felt he would rather die. But he was too stunned and weak to think much save when annie came to him her presence was always life but now it was a sharp revival of the consciousness of his loss left to himself his mind sank down into a sort of painless lethargy from which he did not wish to be aroused mr walton passed a quieter night but was clearly failing fast he sent frequent messages of love and sympathy to gregory and had an abiding faith that all would be well with him in the next life if not in this annie had not the heart to undeceive him when he thought it a little strange that hunting was not with gregory annie explained by saying that the doctor insisted on perfect quiet of mind and the presence of hunting might unpleasantly revive old memories and so unduly excite him after the physician saw his patients the following morning he looked grave and dissatisfied annie followed him to the door and said doctor i don't like the expression of your face well, Miss Annie, said the doctor discontentedly, I've a difficult task on my hands in trying to cure two patients that make no effort to live. Your father seems homesick for heaven, and mere drugs can't rouse Mr. Gregory out of his morbid, gloomy apathy. I could get him ashore if he would strike out for himself, but he just floats downstream like driftwood. But really, I'm doing all that can be done, I think. I believe you are, she said sadly. Good-bye. "'Oh, merciful God!' she exclaimed when alone. "'What shall I do? What shall I do to save him? "'Father's going to heaven and mother. Where is he going?' End of chapter 29